Well, good morning. As Brett said, my name is Brett, and it's really uh, an honor to get to be here with you this morning. The last time I was here, I was 22 years old in 2003, and I was attending a training in the basement, uh, fresh out of college. And even then, I was so grateful uh, for this church's heart to empower ministry both on the campus that you never get sick or tired of hearing testimonies like those, the, the same ones over and over again, because these students are coming to Christ uh, in powerful ways. And I was also so challenged by the many ways you uh, empower ministry in your community. And so indirectly, I've been influenced by this church for many years, and so it's a real privilege to get to be here and share some time uh, with you. Uh, this morning... I have been told you are commissioning your short-term missionaries in the first and the second service, and so I've been asked to speak on the Great Commission. And so let's read it together, uh, Matthew 28. If, I know it's a familiar passage, but if you'll open your Bibles there, I'd love for us to look at it and, uh, and remind ourselves of the power of it again before we jump in. And so I'm going to start in chapter 28, verse 16, and you can follow along with me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, and what I'm about to read, as you know, comes from the very lips of the Son of God. So let's look at them together. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So what qualifies me to teach on this passage? Uh, not much. Um, I uh, became a Christian, similar to some of these stories, only the guy version of some of these stories uh, when I was in college in Atlanta. And uh, the first book that was handed to me after I became a Christian was a, was a missionary biography about a guy named Hudson Taylor called Spiritual Secrets. And I just thought that this was kind of normal Christian reading as a new believer. And so for the next four years, all I did was read biographies of people that were trying to embody and live out this verse in some of the most you know, radical ways you can imagine. Uh, I jumped on a number of opportunities to minister uh, overseas, at home. I was just excited to try to apply passages like this to my life. It's how I decided my future vocation. I just remember asking myself the question as a senior in college uh, a few years ago now, what is the most strategic way I can invest my life to impact the world, to make disciples of the nations. Yes, very idealistic, but I'm going to press into that in just a little bit. I wanted so desperately to build my life on the great commission of Jesus Christ. And so there's not much that qualifies me this morning to preach this passage to you, but I really do hope that I can help and to at least take a stab at helping you build your life just a little bit more on the Great Commission. So I want to pray for us as we look at this passage. Before we do, I just want to confess something to you. I made a big mistake this morning. I read the news before coming, 
And, uh, you know, you should never do that before something like this. I'm actually thankful I did this morning. I, I was reading uh, uh, about uh, a militant group, Boko Haram. Maybe many of you are familiar with Boko Haram. Uh, it's, it's creating a lot of distraction in my heart right now. They're, they're probably responsible for more deaths, Christian deaths in Africa, than maybe any other group in, in the history of the world. And they've just formally submitted... Uh, themselves to ISIS in the last 48 hours. And so what that means and why I just feel rattled a little bit this morning is that while we sit here and worry about not getting wet, that was the biggest worry I had this morning, uh, there are people cowering in their bedrooms in fear, uh, begging God for hope to cling to Jesus maybe in, in their last hours. That gets me. So let me pray for them. Let me pray for us. And we'll look at a passage that I think, because of realities like those, although it's so easy for us to not think about them, we need to view them as life or death matters. So let me pray. Father, we really do pray that you would be glorified this morning. I'm well aware that many of us show up because this is what we do on Sundays, even if it's raining. But I pray that your spirit would meet us in a powerful way. I pray that your spirit would meet me in a powerful way. And there's others of us who've showed up longing and thirsting for the nourishment of your word. And I pray that your word would be so clear to our hearts this morning. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are uh, terrified right now. And they want so badly to believe passages like these and, co and continue to live in light of passages like these, but they're scared. Pray you would embolden them. Give them confidence. God, if they're to die, I pray you would empower them to die well. God, although that seems drastically different than our experience here, God, I, I do pray that, uh, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, too, that we wouldn't dishonor the sacrifice of Jesus and the sacrifice of his saints around the world by taking your word lightly. So, God, I pray you would do something in our, all of our hearts. I pray that our names would would fade away in the name of Jesus would be exalted, that that would be the focus of our heart this morning. I pray this in his name. Amen. So some introductory thoughts on this passage. Uh, it is not only a command of Jesus. We know it's a command. We know it's an imperative out of the lips of Jesus. But it is also, or can also serve, as a guide and a litmus test to our own hearts and the heartbeat of our church. Uh, the you in that last verse, uh, verse 20, there's actually two yous, are actually plural. Plural sense. So, so Jesus is giving this imperative, giving this command to a group of people, to his followers. And so yes, this is a command that we're going to be challenged to follow and respond to, but at the same time, uh, I, I'm praying this morning that it would also serve as a litmus test to our own hearts to the trajectory of our church. 
broadly and specifically here. And so as a result of that, I'm at a uh, direct disadvantage and advantage being a visiting speaker. Disadvantage because I don't know you. I don't, I don't think I know any of you, actually. I think the one person I know is not here this morning. So as a result, I don't know your hearts. I don't know how to best shepherd you. Um, I don't know your strengths. I don't know your weaknesses at a church. I, I don't know what I'm speaking into at all. I'm kind of taking a stab at it. I'm leaning on God's word. So not totally taking a stab at it, but I'm just taking a stab at it. So disadvantage is I don't know you. The advantage is I don't know you. So I can come in and say whatever God has laid on my heart, you know, again, grounded on the word of God and as graciously wrapped as possible, and then I get to leave here in a couple of hours and, and your pastors and your U.S. families are kind of left uh, trying to figure out what just happened in there. And I get to go, and I may not see many of you ever again, and, and uh, I'm not going to give you my email so I don't have to hear. The Great Commission, uh, many ascribe the first use of this term to the Baron Justinian von Veltz. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. Who was of Australian nobility from 1621 to 1668. And unlike the church in his day, he was convinced that this passage, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, was a universal call. Hence, great. It's a call to the ends of the world and for all of the church. It was a great and it was an obligation that was permanent and continuous, hence commission. So he set up his own society, maybe the first of its kind in 1660s, 1640s, called the Jesus Loving Society, which desired to train and send missionaries. Unfortunately, during his, his day, his ideas were entirely rejected. Many of the church leaders even thought his vision was satanic, they believed that the heathen had already rejected the gospel message and sending out missionaries to a foreign land was entirely impractical. And so no one would jump on board with his vision. Veltz decided that he himself must go. He renounced his sizable inheritance, his title, his nobility, and he sailed for South Africa in 1666. And in 1668, he died. And no one really knows how. He was a man way before his time. Thirty years later, the first missionary training school was opened up. Nearly 70 years later after his death, the Moravians sent their first missionaries to the Caribbean. And if you've never read much about the Moravians, I'd highly encourage you. They're responsible, by the way, for uh, impacting John Wesley and, and helping him realize the gospel on a, on a ship as they were sailing back and forth. However, it was nearly 200 years later before the term was popularized, you could say, by Hudson Taylor, missionary to the inland of China. Um, it was him that famously said the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, it is a command to be obeyed. And from that point on, really from Hudson Taylor's life on, Great Commission has just been part of the vernacular for Christians throughout the last few years centuries. So what new can be said about the Great Commission? I don't think anything. Um, I can't imagine another passage that, that's been preached more on uh, across the world. However, when you look at the condition of our church in this culture, 
it is clear that this passage is apparently either disregarded or misunderstood. So what I want to do this morning is simply clarify some terms of this passage and give one application at the end. So let's look at the first word. It's really not the first word, but we're going to return to uh, the, all authority in heaven on earth at the end. I want to, I want to start with the word go. Um, there's been a lot of confusion about this word as of late, it seems. Um, and I believe this confusion has really had a negative effect on the force that Matthew and Jesus was trying to convey when this word was, was written down as given from the mouth of Jesus. Many try to interpret this verb because it's not an imperative. It's not in command form. It's not an imperative form. It's a participle. So many try to interpret this word as having gone, or even worse, as you go. Now hear me, I really believe and am convinced that as we go in our day-to-day activities at the workplace, within our neighborhood, whatever the context is, as we go is a very appropriate setting to make disciples. I don't think that's incorrect. But I think it's sad that we've tried to replace this go with as you go. In the Greek, when there is a verb construction like this in every case in the New Testament, the participle, that go in this case, the the imperative of this passage is make disciples, the command. The participle go, when there's a verb construction like this, is called an attendant circumstance, which means this, it is a necessary fact or reality that shares the imperative sense of the verb that follows. Go, although it's in the participle form, is no less of a charge, a command. And if you think about the context, I think you would agree, right? These soon-to-be, uh, these apostles who are going to be leading this soon-to-be inaugurated church did not move from Jerusalem until after the martyrdom of Stephen. Why is that the case? At least in part, the, the, the reality of behind that was because of their Jewish background. They as Jews were ethnocentric in their evangelism. It was a come-and-see paradigm. Now as Christians, when Jesus says the word, go, He is trying to radically shift their orientation. That's what he's trying to accomplish in that word. What do you do with the word go? My assumption is that many of us share the same posture as these apostles. We're kind of waiting and hoping. And we're, tr- we're trying to live a life obedient to the scriptures. We're, we're hoping that maybe our neighbors will pick up on the sticker we have on the back of our car or the verses we have hung on our refrigerator. Newton's first law says an object in motion stays in motion. But an object at rest stays at rest unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. Jesus' word here is meant to be an unbalancing force acting upon you. To move us into action. Yes, it was given to the apostles, but did not the apostle Paul command us to imitate him as he imitates Christ? Is the need of this age any less than it was 2,000 years ago? Is this only a command for a gifted few? I don't think so. Matthew puts it at the very end of his gospel. 
So as, as we read, as all disciples of Jesus read his gospel account for all history, they are left on the precipice of action. This is the last word of his gospel message. He is wanting to bring them right to the edge of moving out for everyone. And here's what I want you to hear from this one word go. There must be an intentional, that's the key word, an intentional resolve and plan to participate. Let me say that again. There must be an intentional resolve and plan to participate. Do you have an intentional resolve and plan to participate? In obedience to the Word of God, do you have an intentional plan to participate? Let's go. The next word is make disciples. Sorry, I should have made that bigger. I had no idea uh, that it was going to be that small here. The Great Commission was everything about, everything to do with discipleship. It's the centerpiece of this passage. And before I unpack what I think Jesus' paradigm of discipleship was as he says this word, uh, what I want to do is look at this passage and get some ideas on what this word means. So first, we read, to make disciples of all nations. And so there we get our first focus of discipleship. There's going to be three focuses here. The first focus of discipleship is that there has to be a global focus if we're going to call this thing discipleship that we're trying to do. As a church, as a family, individually, there has to be a global focus Many of you are familiar with these stats. There are an estimated 7.1 billion people alive in the world today. 2.91 billion of them live in unreached people groups with little to no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the Joshua Project, which tracks these sort of things, there are approximately 16,500 unique people groups in the world with about 6,900 of them considered unreached. 440 of these groups, by the way, have populations of over 25,000 people. Towns, villages, cities, entire regions of countries. There's no church, no missionary. No one has yet taken the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. I still remember the first time, for me, this reality really sunk in. As I mentioned, I got to, I've gotten to serve overseas quite a bit in, in the last few years, which I've been really thankful for. And in one such trip, uh, we were responsible for distributing newly translated Bibles to a, to a people group that had never seen the Word of God before. There was a missionary there, so he was preaching the Word of God there, but they had actually never had the Bible in their own language before. And so I was a part of a team that was hiking in this mountain range from village to village and distributing Bibles to these people. It was unbelievable. As you could imagine, I, I could, I could, we could do our whole time this morning on stories from a trip like that, memories that still resonate from a trip like that. But one such story was we had just distributed these Bibles. We had spent a few hours uh, playing with the children and teaching uh, through the missionary, through the interpreter uh, a little bit. And a few hours had passed, and we were packing up our bags to hike to the next village, which was a few hours away. And as we started to leave the village, 
A man came running down the path after us, holding his Bible in his hand as he ran and telling us to wait, to wait. So we all stopped. It was a group of about 15 of us, and we turned around, and he was speaking with the interpreter. We didn't know what exactly he was saying, but the interpreter told us, he was saying, where are you going? Who's going to teach us this word? And I can honestly tell you that even now, I can see his face. I can see his home, his children. Our discipleship has to have a global focus. Even our local discipleship of our families and of our neighbors needs to have a universal aim. That's why I'm on the college campus still, even though I'm balding. Because I want to launch students in that direction. I still remember leading my first group of guys to Christ as a 22-year-old, and we were doing these discipleship groups in the, in the rooms. And what we would do every night is we would unroll a map on the floor, this nasty college freshman floor, by the way. Uh, I wouldn't recommend this for those who are, you know, have sensitive stomachs. And anyway, we unrolled the map on the floor, and every, after every time of studying the word together, we would get on our faces and we would lay on this map and we would beg God to protect his saints and we would ask him to send people to the nations through our life. And Idealistic, yes. But it's better than nothing. So our discipleship must have a global focus if it's to be this type of discipleship. A second focus. Jesus says, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The first focus is a global focus. The second focus is an evangelistic focus. Baptism here is a reference to bringing new people into the kingdom and family of God. It is calling them to declare their new allegiance to the Trinitarian God that we serve. And I use this to counter kind of the programmatic idea and paradigm of discipleship that pervades so many of our churches, especially in this culture. In many places, there's an outreach category and there's a discipleship category. In the discipleship category are programs and classes to help people in our church grow in their faith. I think that's great. I think the damage that it does when we create two separate categories is massive, and we don't even see it. I want to submit to you that there should be no distinction. I've heard it said, you've probably heard it said too, discipleship in its purest form begins and ends with evangelism. What does that mean? It means that we go share our faith with unbelievers, praying and trusting that God will use our feeble efforts. We, by God's grace, hopefully see someone trust in Jesus. We teach them, we train them, we equip them, and our job is not done until they're leading people to Christ, teaching and training and equipping. I don't think that 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 statement, evangelism or discipleship begins and ends with evangelism, is broad enough. I think discipleship personally begins and ends with worship. Our, alls, our, our lives being uh, in awe and caught up in who God is. Proclaim the gospel to people because of their desperate need to be redeemed. and Train and equip them and try to work in them such a hunger and love and thirst for God that they're worshiping and out of a worshipful heart, they're proclaiming the gospel. I think... Discipleship begins and ends with worship. Evangelism is a centerpiece of that. 
So our discipleship needs to have a global focus. It needs to have an evangelistic focus if it is to be this type of discipleship. And third, Jesus says, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. Our discipleship needs to have a theological and practical focus as well. Theological, you can see it there, teach them, teach them. And practical, to obey all that I've commanded to you. The word disciple, as many of you already know, first and foremost means learner. Learner. If you're not hungry to learn at the feet of Jesus, then you are not one of his disciples, is what he's saying in the, in the purest sense. And let me make it very clear what I mean by learner and non-learner, because again, in our culture, you know, what the disciples understood in terms of learners, what it, was, what it meant is leaving livelihood behind, making entirely life-altering sacrifices to learn at the feet of Jesus to follow him. That was, the, that was a paradigm of discipleship there. So being a learner does not just mean showing up at church each week, does not just mean watching the new television series that are out about Jesus currently, does not just mean occasionally doing personal devotions and joining the, the newest Bible study. All those things are great. That doesn't make someone a learner. The way Jesus understood it, I think, in this passage. Being a learner is someone who has a voracious appetite for the Word of God and does not settle for the shallow answers of Christianity that, by the way, is doing a tremendous damage to our witness, especially on the college campus as I interact with students. It's devouring God's word and resources and making sacrifices to sit at his feet. Discipleship must have a theological focus. Let me say this because I've heard it said, I just feel like it's a powerful word picture of what I'm getting at here. We have to get out of the theological kiddie pool and move towards the deep end. What Matthew is expressing here when he says, teaching them to obey all that I observed you is pretty awesome. Uh, what he's saying here at the very, very end of his gospel account is, okay, now what I want you to do is go take this, what you just heard from me, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 1 and I want you to teach somebody everything that you have heard from me. Teach them to obey all these words of Jesus that I've just unpacked for you. That's what I do when I'm discipling young men is the first thing we look at is the Sermon on the Mount. The second thing we look at are the parables of Jesus Christ. I want to teach them to obey all that Jesus commands, not suggests. So our discipleship must have a theological and practical focus. Now, that's what we can pick up from the passage. What I want to do with the remainder of our time, which isn't much, is I want to look at this word discipleship. Because when Jesus says this word, when Matthew uses this word, there's a very established paradigm of what the word disciple actually meant in that culture. And I think the best way that we can kind of get an insight into what the word means is looking at Matthew's words in chapter 4, verse 19. Very familiar passage, probably many of you know it, probably many of you have studied it. It's probably been preached up here many times, but I want to look at it one more time. Where Jesus says, as he's calling the disciples to himself initially, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I want to break it down in those three parts. Come follow me and I will make you 
fishers of men. This is where the title of this sermon is, is being pulled from. This is life on life, gospel-centered, multiplication-oriented discipleship. First, come follow me. Discipleship is personal. It's personal. This is what Jesus meant in Mark 3.14 where it said, uh, he called the disciples, he appointed them apostles that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. That's what he's getting at there. There's a sense in which he wanted to bring them into his life so that he might send them out to preach. It's personal. It's life on life. There is a passage in 1 Thessalonians that, will, that is just, it, it shocks me every time I read it. It's 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It reflects that Paul really got this principle. Listen to these words. Listen to these words. And ask yourself if you could say these words to someone outside of your family. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, Church of Thessalonia, I was happy not just to share the gospel, but my very self, because you had become so dear to me. You see, Paul got this idea of life on life, personal discipleship, where the curriculum of discipleship is first and foremost your life. You parents get this. The curriculum of your parenting, how do you parent? Well, the curriculum is your life. And I ask guys all the time to, to offer their life to me as I offer their life to them. And, and just maybe to put some real meat on this for you, I'm asking for a commitment from them and I'm giving a commitment to them as well as I enter into these type of discipleship relationships that are life on life. And I'm asking them to embody the acrostic faith. F, that they would be faithful to God's word. A, that they would be available to me so that we can actually do life together. I, that they would take initiative as leaders to meet needs in their community and initiative to me. T, that they would be transparent because you can't disciple someone if all they're giving you is an is a out-here portrayal of themselves, right? You can't disciple that person or you can't get anything done discipling that person, but you can disciple a person if they were transparent and vulnerable. And H for hungry, which I think is the most critical component because as I said before, discipleship, being a disciple is first and foremost being a learner. What I commit to them, by the way, are three things. I commit to them that I'm going to fail them. I'm going to need their grace. Parents, have you had that conversation with your children? Hey, I just want you to know I have three little girls. When I failed you back there earlier today, that's going to happen a lot. And I need your grace. It's a powerful way to teach them about grace, by the way, and repentance. The second thing I commit to them is daily cultivating my own walk with God so that I have something to give away, abiding in Christ so that they can have something from me, from the Lord. And third, that my life priorities, and this is what's critical, is that, is that it would be my, my walk with God, my family, number two, and number three, them. Listen, we live almost fully integrated lives, my wife and I. Right now we're looking at buying a house that shares a lawn with a university. Um, there's, there, it's not fully integrated. There's some nights where it's just Maggie and I, and there's some days where it's just my daughters and I as I take them on daddy dates. But, but it would shock you. As a matter of fact, the first house we bought in Terre Haute, Indiana, while I was doing ministry at Indiana State University for the first two months, my neighbors thought that we were drug dealers. 
and they were terrified of us. And we didn't know this until one of the elderly neighbors finally came over and said, uh, what's going on at your house? Why are there so many students in cars over all the time? And we told them what we do and how we're discipling students and we're having meals and we're bringing them into our life. And she said, oh, we're so relieved. This neighborhood's so relieved. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, well, we thought you were drug dealers. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm glad I knew that. That's, that would explain a lot of non-reciprocated waves and evil looks. But listen, when you do life-on-life discipleship, I've gotten to experience death with these men and women. They've gotten to see my wife and I in fights, sadness, despair, financial decisions that we've made as as a family, gospel interactions with our neighbors and other students. They've seen us parent. They've seen us be sick. They've seen us despairing. They've seen us convicted of our sin. I ask you, where else are they going to see that? Where else are your kids going to see that? Where else are the people that you're trying to invest in going to see that if you don't let them all the way in? And it is costly. I was telling friends here just last night, I was up till 1 a.m. because people decided to show up and unpack all their stuff at 12.30 a.m., which I thought I was past that, but I'm not. So discipleship is personal, but then Jesus says, I will make you. Discipleship is a process, and it's primarily a process, listen, this is key, of deeply ingraining the gospel into people's lives. This is gospel-centeredness. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A through Z. The gospel is not the starting blocks, it's the race and the finish line. And how the gospel applies to every facet of life is the most important truth you can grow to understand personally and impart to others, period. That is why Paul, when he's writing to Titus in chapter 2, says, for the saving grace of God has appeared. Verses 11 and verse 12 starts with a verb. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives. What teaches us to do that? What trains us to live those type of lives? According to verse 11, what trains us, what coaches us is the gospel. It's God's grace that trains us. So we have to help ourselves and the people we're giving our lives to understand how the grace of God, how the gospel applies to every facet of life. If that is foreign language to you, you've got some reading ahead of you. So I will make you, discipleship is a process, and lastly, discipleship has a purpose. Fishers of men. Hey, listen, I have an unabashed agenda in my discipleship. I want in my case, these students and our neighbors, who, by the way, you can pray for us. We're starting some of this with some of our neighbors, uh, a lesbian couple who are our immediate neighbors and uh, another couple who are living together that are unmarried. And so that's our, new, uh, that's our new community group. I want them to know and love Jesus. That's my agenda, more. The way I see this playing out in scriptures, you guys have seen this, is through spiritual multiplication. This is where the multiplication-oriented component of discipleship comes in. You guys maybe have seen this passage before, 2 Timothy 2. Verse 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of God. And look at what verse 2 says. You can't really read that that well. It says, And what you have heard from me. There's supposed to be names in those boxes. Uh, They got kind of whited out. But the bottom box represents Paul. The top box represents Timothy. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy, Paul, speaking to his son in the faith. The next part of the verse says this. 
what you've heard from me in the presence of many in trust to faithful men. The verse concludes, who will be qualified to teach others also. This is spiritual multiplication. This seems to be Jesus' model of ministry and discipleship. When you read the Gospels, right? He invested into 12 people. And, and amuse me for a second. I want to show you something I show students, and you guys have probably seen this before too, but if you can go to the next slide, I, I just want to, I want, to, I want to give you a practical picture of how this could play out. I think you can hit the next button for me. There. Person A and person B. Person A is your Billy Graham evangelist who leads a thousand people to Christ a day. Person B is someone uh, not as talented like me or like you. Maybe some of you are more talented, but like me, we'll keep the focus here. Who, lo- who leads one person to Christ a year and equips that person to reproduce their faith one time. So after year one, I'm going to use some of you as an example. There you are in your living room with the only person that you could find interested in the gospel from your workplace or your neighborhood because you finally stepped out boldly and asked somebody if they'd be interested in studying the Bible with you, and they actually said yes. And so there you are in your living room, maybe looking at the gospel of John, discussing some of the issues while person A has, uh, for a year's worth of fruit, has led multiple Cape Girardos to Christ. And you feel disheartened in your little living room with one other person, maybe your son or daughter. Year two, person A is still blowing it up. We're getting to big city range that they have led to the Lord, leading a thousand people to Christ today. Meanwhile, you're in your living room with you and three other people cracking open the Bible and praying and trusting God for some of the others that are now starting to come around your life. Year three goes on. Maybe you're outgrowing your living room. You need to rent a room here at the church so that you can have a little bit bigger Bible study, year 4, 16. You guys get the idea with this type of math of exponential numbers, but year 33, just in case you are wondering and haven't seen this before, you can go ahead and hit the next slide. It's the population of the earth. Listen, I know this is idealistic, but what it does for someone like me is help me realize that I can have an impact for God's kingdom without being a, a massive, massively gifted evangelist, you know, by just year to year making disciples. And it may be a little idealistic, but it's better than nothing. I pray we would get this. Jesus ends and begins with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he concludes, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Why is this significant? If you guys ever heard the expression or used the expression, wrap it with grace, you know, you're about to give somebody a really strong truth. Uh, and the encouragement is, well, make sure you wrap that thing in grace so people feel loved and not condemned and judged. This is what Jesus is doing here. This is called a sandwich construction, right? There's grace at the beginning. There's grace at the end. I'm on, I've been on a diet the past three months. And, uh, and I'm doing the whole low-carb thing. And I'll tell you what, man, buns you think are just kind of extra to hamburgers and hot dogs until you're on one of these diets. And then it's like it's so defeating to get your hamburger off the grill and you're hanging out with their friends and they're slapping on, you know, a blab of ketchup and mustard and whatever else. And they pile their bun on, squeeze it down, and they're putting it in their mouth. And you have your fork and knife trying to keep your lettuce on top of the patty, you know, and then the ketchup is squirting off and you're... 
Buns are good. Buns make the, the, the meal, by the way, in a lot of ways. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's providing this gracious bun for us, if you will. He's saying, I know it's scary and intimidating and exhausting, and there's a lot of unknown and countercultural and costly, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I am with you always. Always. So here's the challenge. Do you believe this is true? Do you believe this sandwich, these realities are true? And maybe a better way to ask the question is, does your life reflect that you believe these are true statements? If you're not in the game, if you're not engaging neighbors and loving them and loving coworkers and thinking of ways to serve them and thinking of ways to strike up spiritual conversation, then there could be one of two disconnects. One, you don't truly believe you've been united with Christ. I am with you always. There's a theological discord in your mind. You haven't embraced the reality that when you step out, you don't step out alone. The cultural lingo for, for people who have been bereaved of a loved one is, I know they're with me. I know they're with me. They're empowering me. You hear this all the time. And I want to say there's a sense in which that's true. The memory of a person can really encourage and empower, but there's a sense in which that's not true. The person isn't with us. But for Jesus, it is true. He is with us. We, we have the indwelling presence of the one and true living God with you always. And if we really got this, it would change everything, including our willingness to step out in faith and boldness. That could be one discord. The other discord could be that you don't believe his presence is truly efficacious. You don't believe there's any power associated with him being with you. That he will actually use your fickle and my fickle efforts, my feeble efforts, my failing efforts, and he'll get up underneath them and use them powerfully. My, you know, last week at my uh, house, it was weeding the, the lawn in the flower bed weekend. Um, as you guys probably experienced here, they just kind of come from nowhere in one day. I'm like, how does that happen every year? So my daughters wanted to help me. I've got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and we're all out there together on our hands and knees. And you guys know this if you're parents. It takes a lot longer to get anything done if you have help from your children than if you just did it by yourself, you know? So they're picking things that aren't weeds. I'm like, oh gosh. You know, they're picking the leaves off the weed and, and leaving the root. I'm like, that doesn't help anything. They're pulling the weed out when they do get it and then they're throwing it to another part of the bed, which is where they're just going to reroot themselves and grow again. And I'm having to come behind them, right? And no, okay, let me replant that tulip that wasn't a weed. Let me uh, get way down with a screwdriver this root that's now this fat because every time we just pick the leaves off of it. And, and let me take this root that you threw over here and throw it into the street or in a trash can so it won't regrow. Our efforts are often like that for the Lord. He could probably get a whole lot more done. I, not probably. He could get a whole lot more done if it was just him doing it himself. But he graciously comes behind us, replants what needs to be planted, digs up deeper what needs to be dig, dug. He uses it. So how do you cope with fear and intimidation? 
Jesus says, I'm with you. How do you handle exhaustion? He says, I'm with you. How do you handle the cost? He says, I'm with you. John 12, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, reflecting the life of Christ as he died, if it dies, it will bear much fruit. So, two quick applications. One is discipleship happening inside the walls of this church. Again, I don't know you, so I don't know the answer to this. Are you uh, wise sages of the church investing into the next generation? For five years, I met with Jerry Kasky, a 79-year-old elder of our church in Terre Haute, Indiana. I took him to breakfast every month. He took me to breakfast, but I would steal the bill and just sit and ask him things about his life and leading a family and being faithful to the gospel. Are you doing that? Multi-generationally. High schoolers, are you investing into middle schoolers? Middle schoolers, are you thinking to invest into children? Giving away what you know. And all the way through the church. Second, is it happening outside the walls? Again, I don't know. I'm sure it is. On many levels, I'm sure it is. But here would be what I challenge you to. Actually, if you have something you're writing on, write this down, and, and maybe if you have your phone, pull this out. Who are three people, and here's the criteria for these people, that are not family, that you've known for more than two years, and that you've never asked, hey, would you be interested in studying the Bible with me? Seeing what it has to say? Three people. Could you even give me some names? Step one. Can we begin praying for these people? Step two. Can you start lo loving and serving them if you're not already doing that? Like intentionally. That'll be step three or four or five or six or seven or eight. Can you ask him that question at some point? Hey, would you be interested in studying the Bible? I don't know if you'd be interested. If not, that's fine. Would you be interested in studying the Bible with me? I don't think that's too dangerous. I love you. I don't know you. I love you because you're brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm so thankful to get to be here with you this morning. And I just want to pray to end us here. I want to pray... Psalm 67 for us. And I want to just ask that this reality would be more and more true here in Cape Girardeau. So would you pray with me? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. The peoples praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. Yes, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth Fear him. Amen.